This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have been told that there could be outbreaks here and there, depending on what has happened with COVID-19 and this pandemic, and we've seen them. We were told that from the outset. And we've seen some very tragic cases in amongst those outbreaks, whether they are long-term care homes and whether or not they are other operations. And farms are certainly something that don't necessarily fit in the parameters of what we're being asked to do with COVID-19 and the way that things have always been run. And that's always the biggest challenge. And when it comes to migrant workers, we have farms in this area who depend on those workers because they need to come in and not be here the whole year. And so this has been a system that has been in place for a while. Are there ways to improve the system? There are always ways to improve every system. But now we have seen a major outbreak. And that major outbreak has seen more than 160 migrant workers at a farm test positive for COVID-19. We haven't seen all of them show symptoms. We have seen some of them hospitalized. And we are now about a week into this first being reported and a couple of weeks into this actually having begun. And joining us right now is someone who can bring us up to date on a few things and talk about some of the challenges that exist for migrant workers. Sonia Villas joins us, Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. Sonia, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. Uh, I'm Sonia Aviles, an organizer based in Niagara. I'm with the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. And we really appreciate you being here. Maybe you can bring us up to date on the latest when it comes to the workers working at the farm in Haldeman, Norfolk County. Okay, so for sure, we have uh, in total, in uh, like you said, over 160 workers that have tested positive uh, in the virus in that county. Uh, total in, in farms in Ontario, we have close to 400 uh, workers who have tested positive for the virus. Um, uh, two in ICU, we've seen also that, uh, unfortunately, another worker died uh, last Saturday. So in, in as far as Norfolk County, we have um, workers from Scotland Farm who have uh, tested positive to the virus. And what I can tell you is that we still hear uh, complaints from workers that workers are not able to... Um, physical, uh, uh, have physical distance while working. Um, in fact, we released uh, a report yesterday, the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. Um, the title of the report is uh, Unheeded um, Warning. And so we've heard from over 180 workers who called on behalf of uh, 1,162 workers, including uh, workers in your area. Uh, and so some of the highlights of that report are that workers are, um, in general, not able to make complaints because they're afraid of being deported. They're afraid of losing their jobs. And so we have heard the outcry of workers uh, asking the government to provide permanent residence status and arrival so workers can be free from these conditions. Because like, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, we've known these conditions have been around for many, many years. 
we've known that the system has operated this way with workers. Um, but now COVID-19 has revealed the dangers of these working conditions where workers are not able to refuse unsafe work because they don't have the ability to uh, freely move to another workplace. And as you know, these workers depend on the income that they make in Canada. Them and their families depend on this. So we've seen that our government has fallen short to provide um, protections for these farm workers. And workers are calling on the federal government to act now and provide permanent residence status on arrival. Um, Justin Trudeau was asked yesterday about the, the report, and he, he said no one in Canada should be at greater risk because of COVID. We need to do better. So we asked Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you can do better by providing workers permanent residence status on arrival to make sure that they are safe to leave the job. Uh, we've seen two workers dead already. Are we waiting for another one to die? Two are in ICU. And so we are hearing the cries from workers that they are afraid in this pandemic, that they are afraid to speak up. Yesterday during our press release, we had a worker from Scotland Farm who, who was brave enough to speak up about his experience. So we applaud this worker because not a lot of people are able to speak up and lose their jobs. We're talking right now with Sonia Aviles, who is an organizer with Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. And we're looking on the whole at the situation that exists for migrant workers. And there are some things that fit within the parameters of the pandemic. There are other things that do not. And this is one of those things that does present challenges. Sonia, you had mentioned the threat of deportation. Is that a threat or is that just a concern for workers? Has anybody been threatened with that that you know of? We have, we have. In, in our report, we can, the report is available on our website. We have heard of workers in some areas. We refrain to, uh, you know, mentioning specific, specific farms or workers' names that workers who have felt sick during the pandemic are threatened to be sent back to their home country because they, the employer has complete control, right? So if the employer decides that a worker's contract is ending, then they can be put in a plane and, and sent back to their home country. Even in this pandemic, we've seen this. And that's why we're making a call for the government to act and make sure there are no reprisals for workers who decide to speak up. And the, the way to do this is making sure work, workers can freely move from a farm, and that means permanent resident status so they can leave a bad employer. Right now, workers, as we know, are tied to one employer, so they can only work for that employer, and that employer has complete control of their working conditions, their housing conditions, and so workers are not free to move, and they can be uh, deported. We've seen this not only during COVID-19, but before, and we've seen this for many years. You describe their their conditions that they're working in. What has changed in terms of how things are being handled for living conditions for workers in this year, given that we're in a pandemic? Sadly, I can tell you that not much has changed, right? So when the government opened the border in March, uh, employers were provided with uh, guidelines and economic assistance to be able to uh, house workers in hotels during the 14-day quarantine. We've seen that some employers have taken that um, decision to house them in hotels, but we've also seen that many workers were in houses not able to social distancing. So, for example... Many workers were put in bunkhouses 
up to six workers to a room. Uh, many workers were being uh, put to work together in greenhouses, largely. And this is also in our report. We heard complaints from workers that were not able to show social distancing. So we know that the condition with the housing is a precarious condition. We need a national housing standard because right now it's up to each municipality to check um, on the housing for migrant farm workers. We need a national housing uh, strategy so workers, if they go anywhere in the country, they know that they're going to have safe working conditions, but uh, living conditions, I'm sorry, but most of all, we need permanent resident status for the workers to be able to move around, to freely move. When we talk about the request to have things changed, the farms that may not be adhering to what has been asked, you would think, well, there would be enough inspections going on. Do we need more inspections? Could that help? Or are you simply looking for legislation that that would give a more permanent status and and give the freedom to move from one farm to another? So we, we're, uh, the main ask of, of worker members and workers in general is that we get permanent resident status on arrival, but I can speak on the inspections on the house. And so, for example, right now, uh, inspections uh, to houses and employers uh, are being conducted via video, right? So an employer will sit down and be on a computer with an agent from the government um, explaining how they have complied. That doesn't do anything because workers, one, workers are not involved in these inspections. Workers are ignored during the inspections. The inspectors only talk to employers directly. So we certainly need to do more uh, with uh, inspections. We need to have unannounced inspections to houses because what we've seen is that uh, houses are inspected prior to workers arriving in the country, but then some workers are put in different houses. So the employer shows one house. When employers arrive, the housing conditions is totally different to what they should. So we do need to um, immediately, the government, to take action in inspecting all housing and farms. But we do need permanent resident status on arrival also immediately. So workers can, can, again, can be free to refuse unsafe work and unsafe living conditions. Sonia Avalev joining us from Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. Sonia, you've referenced the report and you mentioned we can go and read that. Where would we find it? So you can go to migrantworkersalliance.org and the report is available there in our website. So migrantworkersalliance.org. I can also email it to you so you can have access to that. Sonia, thank you so much for your time today. Please stay safe. You too. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. That is Sonia Avales from Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. And, you know, we, we've got to look at it as Sonia has. She's looking at this big picture. She's looking at this year over year over year. This is, this is not all directed at what is happening now. But what are we hearing? What does it sound like? Where are the echoes coming from? When we started hearing about long-term care homes and some of the inspections going on there, what did you hear? The inspectors would get a date or they would be able to fandangle things and then you get yourself ready for inspection. I've never understood that. I mean, what is the danger? That we are going to see places that need to be shut down? You know, we have restaurants that have to adhere to inspections and standards and they will be closed. You know, we've got a health unit 
sheet that sometimes goes on the front door. Remember all of that coming in? Why is it that we have this issue with inspections where it's, uh, well, we gotta, got to tell you when we're coming, you know, and then you show one thing and, and you do another. And these are not the first allegations we've heard of this kind. They go to long-term care homes. We've heard it now with regard to migrant workers. And it's not everybody. I don't know how much of a majority or a minority. I'm willing to bet it's quite a minority. But it's happening. And that's an issue. So if there's another thing we can add to our ever-growing list of things coming out of this pandemic, let's fix up how inspections are done so that they accomplish what they should accomplish. You shouldn't get a warning from a mom or a dad that they're going to look in your room so it better be clean later in the day. No, they open the door and go, what happened in here? Clean this. Straighten this up. And that's a form of an inspection. That's the kind of inspection we've got to have. And more and more, we're getting accusations that that's not the way that things have been working. Fix that. Am I thinking right that there is an old adage, he who loves is lost? Does that even make sense? Here's what I think does make sense. He who fails to learn or she who fails to learn is also lost. We've got to take every single situation that we come upon in our lives and try and figure out what it can teach us. And right now, there's a lot of learning going on with regard to how we act, what we do, and what we are going to have to deal with going forward. We are very pleased and very lucky to be joined by Dr. Simon Sutcliffe, who is a clinical oncologist. He's a former CEO of the BC Cancer Agency. He's also involved not just in cancer control, but in palliative care and in global health. And we have an opportunity to talk about a whole host of things. Dr. Sutcliffe, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You're most welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here because learning what we need to do in going forward is so key in so many areas. And with regard to a pandemic, you would think we would have been more prepared for what was coming down the road, but it seems that we were not. If we were to fast forward to the end of this pandemic, if we could dare to dream for a second, what do you think we need to make sure we learn from what is going on now? The, the point you made, Mike, is, is, I think, the key one. It's learning. This time we had no choice. Next time we ought to be able to express our choices and uh, move forward. And I think there's, there's two types of things. Number one, in the near term, this phase of COVID-19 is contained, but until a virus com- becomes available, uh, sorry, until a vaccine becomes available, um, recurrent waves can happen. What can we learn from this that we would play forward now as good social practices based in public health to avoid recurring waves of COVID-19. But from my perspective, the bigger issue is really playing to the far term, and that is COVID-19 is a pandemic. We haven't had one for a number of years. They will come. They are coming more frequently. It's only reasonable to expect that another will come. So what can we do to actually reduce the probability that there will be further pandemics of novel infectious agents? Let's get to the point that these could come, I think, a, a little bit more 
frequently because if we look back there are a lot of comparisons made to what happened 100 years ago and then there is quick mention of H1N1 or SARS or whatever it could have been that didn't turn into what we have right now. Why is it that you expect that we could see a higher frequency of what we're dealing with now? So, So almost all of the pandemics, in fact, probably all of the pandemics that we've experienced have resulted from the emergence of a new disease to humans out of an established condition in other animal species. And it's this transfer to humans that that gives rise to the pandemic. And the reason that they're becoming more frequent is that we have created the conditions where animal-to-human transmission is much more likely to occur. And we continue and persist with making those conditions more, more frequent, more common. And what I feel is we should face the choice, not only of the short term, but also of the long term, and decide, should we actually be making major social, socioeconomic decisions that protect our future from pandemics? We're talking with Dr. Simon Sutcliffe. Dr. Sutcliffe has worked in a number of areas of health and right now deals with the population-based aspects of cancer control and palliative care and certainly global health, which is what we're dealing with right now. So how do we go about raising the discussion in order to address this interaction between humans and animals that could lead us to something else that has another name that we haven't heard from sometime in the future? What do we do? Um, I, I think we stop thinking that pandemics are a medical problem and start realizing that they really are a socio-political and economic problem and that the conditions that give rise to them are those that travel with climate change, deforestation, change in wetland habitats, change in the distribution of vectors from disease, be they bats, mosquitoes, uh, other mammals, etc., um, addressing the issues of the creep of society into um, natural habitats where there really aren't the conditions for containment of transfer of infections from animals to man, and in, in a sense become much more respectful of the fact that there is a natural habitat and that we should not encroach on it in opportunistic ways but in structured ways that reduce the risks that that arise from it. No doubt. I mean, that's, and that's something that, you know, is is a, a difficult conversation to have when we look at invading where certain habitats are and, and what's going on in those habitats. How optimistic are you, Dr. Sutcliffe, that we will learn from this and will address some of these issues? Um. That, that's a challenging question, Mike, because the reality is we all do know about climate change and we do understand deforestation and the reduction in the Amazon rainforest, etc. Um, and yet we do not do anything about it. We may express a view, but it's, it's not in a way that changes anything. I believe that we can play forward the short term and minimize the risks against repeated waves of COVID. And I think we can reasonably look at changing the way we behave societally to reduce those risks. But I think for the bigger issue, 
It's really when do we stand up as a society to climate change? And, and when is our commitment not just language but action? When do we stand with people who are against deforestation and say we as Canadians are, are opposed to deforestation? When do we take on these big social issues and start to contain them as opposed to just purely containment of a, an episode of infection when it occurs? Fantastic questions, and whether or not we get an answer will probably speak volumes as to what happens to us all going forward. Dr. Sutcliffe, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for your time, and please keep safe. Thank you very much, Mike. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Simon Sutcliffe, who has been involved in cancer control for many years, uh, is involved in palliative care, and certainly is involved right now with global health. It gets back to the fingertip question. You know, and, and we do a lot of discussing in talk radio, and, and the action doesn't necessarily come on the back of that discussion. But it has to start somewhere. And if we are looking at going back to our lives, and just watch, just watch what happens this weekend. We're going to look to go back to our lives. You're going to see more selfie pictures you are going to see more pictures of food, all the same crap that we had seen for so long. All this, my life is a TV show. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to show we haven't learned a thing. That's what that's going to do. My life is a TV show. Because that's what we all have the power to do right now. But you know what that is? It's usually a TV show that isn't watched very much. You might get the odd like, the odd comment from a friend. Oh, how, how many likes did I get on my picture? Oh, Instagram had to change things. They had to change the count on that because people were getting too wrapped up in it. Huh, I only had 946 likes. Why was that? Uh, that's not what we need. But that's what we're going to get on Friday. People are going to start getting haircuts. They're going to post pictures of their new haircut. They're going to post pictures of their food. They're going to post pictures of themselves getting a haircut and eating that food. And we're going to be right back to where we were. Because as far as I'm concerned, that kind of a road was the wrong road. And we've had a bit of a break from it. If you've noticed, not as many selfies. Why? People don't like the way they look. People haven't been able to go to the barber, the hair salon. Wherever it is that they would go, people haven't been able to eat out at restaurants. Now, as much as you can say, hey, it's fun to do those things. Yes, it is. But it's also time-consuming, and it's, it's taking us down the wrong road. This is not what we need to be doing. We need to be doing something far more constructive. But being the walking bundles of emotion that we are, I think that's where we're headed back to. And sorry to be the curmudgeon in the cave, in saying, oh, you know, don't take pictures of your head and show them to everybody. Yeah, but what are we learning from this? And what do we take out of this? How much social distancing does go on? Because there's a lot of things that are really unclear. And there are a lot of people who will just treat this as, you know, whatever, like they treat it when they put on a mask and go to the grocery store. I am invincible. You're not invincible. 
In fact, you should be careful because you're protecting yourself, according to the science, you're protecting me from you more than you're protecting you from me. Uh, so let's remember that. But it'll be, it'll be a fascinating social study this weekend to see how things do play out and how much physical distancing is kept and how many people just choose to say, it's sunny because even though it's not going to be 32 this weekend, might be a little cooler. We are expecting to get some sunshine. So it is sunny. It's summertime. I haven't been allowed to do the things I've wanted to do. So I'm taking full advantage. Me, me, me. I can't wait to watch. I like people watching. And I'm fascinated to know what happens. But I'm also frightened at the same time. How about you? Let's continue with another frustrating topic i know everything's been really frustrating in a lot of ways but we've got to appreciate what's going on for some businesses and even for some counties that aren't able to move into phase two and we've all got to remember the virus hasn't changed you've got to keep following the rules and because the virus has not changed u sports the oua the ocaa came out with announcements yesterday regarding fall sports. So sports that have a fall championship at the college level and at the university level. Joining us right now is the Director of Sport and Recreation at Western University, Christine Stapleton. Christine, yesterday was a tough day. What's today been like? Oh, yesterday, uh, I've been in this business a lot of years. Uh, I was a student athlete. I was a coach. And I've been an athletic sport and rec administrator for um, the last you know, 12 years. And yesterday was the toughest day in my career. No doubt. When you heard the announcement, what do you do with something like that? How do you relay an announcement like that? Well, you have to, as, as you know, this, this virus, it's all about pivoting, right? And, and what you thought was a plan um, may not be the plan tomorrow. So... Um, we were, uh, I'm on the U Sports Board of Directors, so um, I was aware of um, the challenging circumstances medically and logistically to try to get back to sport across Canada, across our province, and even, as you said, uh, even in the different regions of Ontario. So, um, yeah, we, we, we just needed to um, make a decision to get students some certainty. Uh, as you know, Western is a blended uh, blended academic model, and, and not all students are going to have to come back to London to be able to pr- uh, continue their academic uh, uh, pursuit. So, no, there was a lot of reasons why um, the decision was made, and, uh, you know, trying to support and help our student-athletes is a major part of their identity, being a, a, a student-athlete. So um, those were kind of the... Uh, the messages we tried to get out yesterday, just about the health and safety of our student-athletes and um, supporting them in, in must be in a very difficult time. We're talking with Christine Stapleton on London Live. Christine is the Director of Sport and Recreation at Western University. Christine, maybe we can lay out what this does mean. We hear fall sports or fall championships. What does that indicate and affect? Yeah, so it, it affects a number of our sports, um, uh, golf, tennis, baseball, rugby, lacrosse, rowing, cross-country, field hockey, soccer, football, and water polo. And although, you know, uh, there's golfers out golfing right now, and, and our, row, our rowing program, they're back out on the lake. 
So what is the, it affects is the competition. So we will continue to deliver sport where it is safe um, in face-to-face. Uh, and some of our programs and our student-athletes, our coaches are, are already back training and working. Uh, some will take longer uh, because of the physical distancing required to um, compete in their sport. That said, they can still train. And, and another big piece of what we are doing is um, we have had great engagement with our student-athletes across Canada with virtual support, both in strength and condi- conditioning mm-hmm. and individual training and team training in a, in a virtual Zoom, uh, Microsoft Teams video. So, you know, those are the things we can do. Um, and uh, when it's safe to do so, we'll, we'll get back into the, the competition and, and hopefully in the, in the later this fall. So can we say in some ways you don't stop being a student athlete? It's just done differently. And for fall competitions, the championships do not exist. And in many ways, the games or events do not exist. Um, well, that's um, a student athlete. Uh, it, you know, the, the training goes on and our coaches are working very hard. And I'm really, really proud of the, the work that they're doing to support uh, their student athletes up until yesterday and, and onward from starting today. Um there's an opportunity to uh, participate when safe to do so in um, in uh, non-conference, so in exhibition play. Uh, these are all elements we're working with our partners at Western. The other piece of this, Mike, is is how do you get back face to face on a campus like Western? Um, there's a lot of requirements and um, safety protocols that we need to be aware of as we bring our our coaches and our student athletes back to campus. So. There's a lot of work taking place on uh, the training, and there will be some uh, some competition this fall when it's safe to do so. Okay, so in other words, there at least could be some silver linings, but it, it, this is just going to be far from what it normally is. Very much so. It, um, that's the, the question I've got asked many times. Well, what will it look like? And and for us to say today, I, I don't know, but I do know that the number one thing is uh, is keeping our – our, uh, you know, our student athletes, our coaches, the officials. There's a lot of elements um, to deliver sport competitively on a campus like Western and the OUA and a U Sport. So um, until they can, we can kind of assure their safety. Um, we'll uh, we'll adhere to the protocols. That right there is always number one, safety. Christine, thank you so much for your time and the explanation, and I hope the next time we're talking we are able to look and say, hey, guess what, numbers are this and that means this, and here's what we've figured out. I'll look forward to that conversation. Well, I'd love to come back and talk at that time too. Thanks so much. Take care. Be safe. That's Christine Stapleton, Director of Sport and Recreation, and you heard Christine reference it, safety. And that's, uh, that is number one. I mean, everybody wants to have sports come back. There's still so much discussion going on, even among the pro ranks. Baseball still can't get out of their own way. The NBA seems to have more of a plan. Disney World is where they'll try it. We have the premiership in British soccer coming back. We already have the Bundesliga playing. And you're not seeing rash outbreaks there. So that at least, that at least is a positive. And, you, and you've got to say, you're not having outbreaks there right now you always have to qualify it that way so there are at least some positive signs but as christine pointed to you've got to make a decision 
and League One Ontario made that decision. Now the OCAA and college sports and U sports and the OUA have made the decision in university sports. You've got to make a decision so that people know what direction they're going in and how it is going to play out. So there is an opportunity for exhibition. There is an opportunity for competition in some way, depending on how all of this plays out. So at least a light somewhere in this tunnel, but right now the reality is, no, you can't do it the way that you want to do it. And as unfortunate as it is, and for seniors, as crushing as it is, that's the reality. Told you. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.